Yo, yo, what is going on, everybody? Pete4 the podcast. We got the latest episode, full NFL coverage here as we are two weeks into the NFL season. Uh, missed last week. I apologize. I don't know what happened there. Just, uh, yeah, it was an important week, and I let everybody down. But we were back. We were back in full force in a full slate of things to talk about, uh, including the news that broke today. A certain quarterback is not going to play anymore. I think we all know who that is, except we don't because there's a lot of quarterbacks not playing. We're going to dive into all of them. I'm also going to talk about the abomination that is the rule change of this past year because of emotional uh, overtake of all the coaches and, and the owners out there from last January. We're also going to talk about a certain offense that looks very good and looks very potent here early in the NFL season. We're going to talk about that one guy who keeps making all the news for all the wrong reasons. I think you may know his name. We're also going to talk about the trades that happened in the NFL. It's all NFL. It's September. It's fall. Football is here. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 29 of the podcast. I think most people can agree that when you act on emotion, that is when your worst decisions come about. You don't have to be a philosopher to really understand that. You, you don't have to be any high-level thinker. When you act on emotion, when you let whatever you're feeling get the best of you, that's when your worst decisions happen. And even in business, this is just ever more important not to do. National Football League is definitely a business. We can all probably agree on that as well. Yet we still have instances like the New York Giants, the New York Football Giants, letting Eli Manning continue to be their quarterback, even into 2019. It was 2017. Two and nine, I was, uh, you know, it jogged my memory. From my good pal, Matthias Simmons. Matthias, great guy, love him, have known him for years. He's New York through and through, Long Island to its core. Mets fan, Giants fan, uh, Islanders, you know, obviously he likes all the home teams there. We were talk- We were going back and forth today. Obviously the news, Eli Manning, he is out. Daniel Jones, he's taken over this week, week three in the NFL. The era probably is over uh, for Eli in New York. It was a good run, absolutely, a lot of good memories. But there comes a time when you have to cut the cord. That time was 2017. I remember seeing it in week one. Granted, I thought the Giants had a good playoff push in them uh, that year. They had made the playoffs a year before in 2016, 2017. I thought, you know what? I think Eli can still, uh, I think he can still throw the ball. I think given the uh, defensive pieces they put together, that was back with Olivier Vernon, Jenkins, uh, Collins had just come into the league, I believe, 2016. I thought, you know, this crowd, uh, you know, the p- pass catchers out there, they can make a run. Turns out I was dead wrong, okay? They were awful. And it was evident since week one, Eli Manning could not play anymore. He looked like a shell of himself. And then you go into two and nine, so that's 11 weeks into the season, it, it was just clear. If you disagree that Eli Manning still had something left in the take, then we can stop the convo right now. Because we are just on different worlds. We, we, we are not even in the same galaxy if you think Eli Manning can still play football right now. Eli Manning was done. Ben McAdoo, the head coach at the time, realized this. Now, granted, this guy was a lame duck, okay? 
This guy could have easily packed it in, made the easy call, and let Eli Manning continue his streak of consecutive games played. Eli Manning was an Iron Man, don't forget. Yet he went to Eli, he asked him if he wanted to continue to start the games to preserve the streak, but then he said, you know what, we're going to have to sit you down because I have to see what's in Geno Smith. I have to see what's in Geno Smith because he's a potential stopgap placeholder for the next quarterback that's going to be here long term. Because it's time as an organization that the New York Giants find another long-term solution. Now, here's the difference between all of this. And I caught a lot of heat for this at the time. This was two years ago, 2017. I took a lot of heat for saying McAdoo made the right call. And I get all these examples. Kobe Bryant, Yadier Molina in a few years. You need to honor those individuals that have given so much to the organization by letting them play out the year or letting them play out their streaks of consecutive games. Here's the difference. And this is why I don't like cross-sport analogies. Football in the quarterback position, it's not plug-and-play. When you need a new catcher in baseball... You can quantify it so easily as to what uh, output you need at the position to help your team ultimately win. You know exactly what you need from a defensive standpoint to stay afloat with a catcher. Quarterback, there are so many variables in play in that position to ultimately help you win a football game. And finding a quarterback is so doggone difficult, especially the different levels. Average, now I do say average quarterback, it's easier to find than ever nowadays. But the elite performers... The guys that you won around for 10 years, we all know that is a process. You don't just go pick those guys up. You don't just go find them in the draft. I mean, it takes preparation. You have to study these prospects. So when McAdoo made the tough decision to bench a legend, he's a New York Giants Hall of Famer, obviously two Super Bowls, might be a Hall of Famer, a Canton Hall of Famer, which I can't believe. I'll get to that in a minute. He was so entrenched in the history there, and a guy who is in a lame duck status, Ben McAdoo, the head coach, said no. What's best for the organization is to play Geno Smith, see if he's capable of riding the ship for the rest of the year into the 2018 season to see whichever direction the organization goes as far as finding another long-term quarterback. But no, McAdoo did that. Geno Smith played, I believe it was out in Oakland. Next week he was fired. McAdoo was fired. Eli comes back. He plays the rest of the year. He plays all of 2018. And then finally you get a quarterback in the 2019 draft. And here we are today. And all it did was delay the process. And as good as Daniel Jones has been in the preseason, we still don't know what he is. We have had looks at Baker Mayfield. We have had looks at Sam Darnold. Josh Allen is 2 0. Lamar Jackson, I mean, I'm not the biggest Lamar guy. Everybody knows that. But guess what? He's improved a lot. Look at what could have been, but they decided to delay it by playing Eli Manning. By delaying, by acting on emotion. You cannot act on emotion. You you don't continue streaks for the sake of saying thank you. This is pro sports. You either get it done or you don't. Eli Manning... You played well down the stretch during those Super Bowl runs. But the fact remains, really, you haven't been all that great outside of that. You haven't. The numbers don't, I mean, the performance shows it. 
I've always said, I've always contended, Philip Rivers has been a better quarterback. He just was never in the same situation as Eli Manning. Philip Rivers is the better QB today. He was a better QB years before that. So much of what it is is just your environment. Philip Rivers never had the environment. He's had a cheap owner. He's had Spanos out in San Diego slash LA his entire career. The only person they've ever paid is him. Drafting. They hoarder draft picks. They never make a move anywhere. New York Giants, Tom Coughlin, Hall of Fame coach potentially. John Mara, good owner, stable, loyal, smart, league guy, has the best interests of his team and the league. Eli Manning's always been the better situation. And he may have the name. He may get in Canton one day. But I tell you what, if Eli Manning is in Canton, Ohio, as a gold jacket Hall of Famer, there's a lot of other quarterbacks that should be coming in right behind him. This was an emotional decision by the New York Giants. It was the wrong one two years ago. It has only delayed this process of finding out who's going to be under center for the Giants. Uh, For many more years to come, maybe it is Daniel Jones. But you know what? The stopgap, the the betterment, the health of the organization, getting the losing out of the locker room, that should have happened long ago. It should have happened in 2017. Ben McAdoo, I had your back then, and I still do today. Staying on cue. Emotion. It's bad to act on it, but it happened again. It happened just this past winter because of the New Orleans Saints and the Los Angeles Rams we now have this abomination of a pass interference rule you can now you can now challenge it even when it's not there you can challenge non-calls in the National Football League and it's been an absolute disaster through 2 weeks it's been horrible clear and obvious we bo- we all know the words clear and obvious and yet we're not, we're seeing the air or we're seeing the infraction or not seeing the infraction during the uh, given challenge, pass interference. And yet it's only being legislated on the level of egregiousness. It's kind of amazing. Replay is supposed to fix errors no matter the level uh, of crime, right? It's letter of the law. We are seeing pass interference happen, even if it's just a love tap. But we see, we have concrete evidence that there was interference either on the offensive player or the defensive player, and yet it's not being corrected. We're only correcting the egregious errors, and we're leaving that subjectivity up to the officials. The subjectivity that was exactly on the field and is still on the field with the officials now that everyone can't stand. And it was the whole reason behind implementing this rule. And now coaches have no idea what to challenge and what not to. And they're losing out on correcting other calls down the road in a period of the game that that may be even more critical. Because they have no idea how it's going to be legislated by the officials or in New York. And that's a shame because they have a tough job too. The officials have a tough job to do that. And I think we need to take it out of their hands. It's what I said from the beginning. I am sure as hell glad this is a one-year experiment. Because right now it's failing and they will take it out immediately. Usually with these one-year things, it's just uh, 
I don't know, it's just fluff for everybody else to understand that, hey, it's not permanent yet, but basically it all but is. They're just saying that to uh, appease people. This one might actually just be one year because a lot of people are not on board with it. Even all the same media folks that I uh, was reading and hearing uh, last uh, winter, you know, when Nikel Roby Coleman ran into, uh, I don't even remember the receiver anymore, the Rams receiver, whatever, he interfered with him. All those people now are even saying they don't even like this rule. And I, I all I can say is I told you, you're just swapping out one set of problems for another. Replay may be as good as it can get. There is a human element in here that you just, you, you don't want to dissolve because even replay will take some of the, uh, the I'm not going to say the character out of the game, but the flow and the rhythm of it that's just natural. We don't want every call to be corrected because that, that will ruin it ultimately. I, I just The pass interference thing, I mean, it's just been awful. There was one, uh, I guess it was the Seattle game in Pittsburgh. There was one in Minnesota in Green Bay uh, with Dalvin Cook. There was the pick plays. I mean, I mean what else is there to really say? It's just been terrible, and I, 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 wish they, I, I hope they throw this out tomorrow. I hope they throw this out tomorrow. If not, we're just going to have to wait until the end of the season because this has just been a horrible for all parties. It's no one's fault necessarily other than, I guess, the committees, the coaches who wanted this in there because originally the owners you know, shot it down, but then Andy Reid and I believe it was Bill Belichick said, hey, no, we want this in here to be able to, uh, to overturn the calls that are bad and to be able to fix egregious pass interference on our offensive players uh, and defense players. But now it's just like not even the smartest of coaches, Andy Reid, Belichick, two of the best out there, they don't even know when to call. They don't even know when to challenge this because it's always open into each official's interpretation. And wouldn't you rather – aren't you more forgiving when it's a snap judgment on the field when they make that than when they are in an air-conditioned room looking at it three times in a row and then they arrive at a decision? That's going to make you more upset. You're much more forgiving when it's right then and there in the heat of the moment. But here we are. Replay, pass interference, the NFL. I cannot wait for this to go away. All right, let's actually get to some football here. All right, I haven't really, I obviously missed last week. I know, awful of me, this being a football uh, deal here on the pod. Uh, and I missed week one. Very, very sorry for that. Um Really don't even have an excuse for it. It just didn't happen. But here we are talking, and obviously the big thing through two weeks is the five quarterbacks, the five starting quarterbacks that are already out and going to miss significant time for their team. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go off and rank the five absent quarterbacks for their teams, and I'm going to put a level of importance as far as that player to their team and how I think it's going to affect them for their season. I think there's the best place to start is I'll, I'll start last, okay? I'll start last, and this person was hurt uh, in week one. It was the Jacksonville Jaguars, Nick Foles. I think this will hurt them the least, mainly because I think Jacksonville didn't have a shot even with Nick Foles. I don't think they're that good of a team. They're talented, but they're the most undisciplined bunch that I've seen. You got Jalen Ramsey. He's already asking for a trade. Um, that's going to pop up and 
possibly, you know, distract the team, even though he said he didn't think it was uh, in, you know, it wasn't in his intention to have that happen. Uh, and I'll get to that in a minute. But overall, their culture sucks. Coughlin, for all the talk of him, him being a disciplinarian, he's got a very undisciplined bunch. And overall, they just they don't really play a style of play that's uh, very um, – it takes a lot for them to take hold of a football game. They have to play near flawless football with a very simplistic scheme, both on the defensive and offensive side of the football. And Nick Foles, very limited as a quarterback. He can, you know, run some play action and he can throw up a deep ball every now and then. But Leonard Fournette, okay, he cannot play uh, in this offense. Nick Foles needs to operate operate out of the shotgun. Okay, Leonard Fournette cannot run the football when he's a deep eye runner like Adrian Peterson, okay? That, that just doesn't work. So Nick Foles is out. You got Gardner Minshew, who's a six-round pick, and he can throw it down the field a little bit so far I've seen, but overall he's just not, you know, operating from a high IQ standpoint. He's got some pocket presence, but he, uh, he can't make all the throws just yet. I think this affects the Jags the least because they're really just not all that good. Um, the next injured quarterback that I think probably will have the least amount of effect is the Drew Brees uh, injury. Okay, obviously he hit his hand on Aaron Donald this past weekend. I was watching that game. I was all fired up for it, and then that happened. And Teddy Bridgewater came in, and Teddy's okay. Um, I'm not as high on him as a lot of other folks. I think he can run some play action and you know get the ball out rather quickly, but he's not really a guy who's really going to hit the third third read on, on a play. Okay, on a uh, uh, on you know a deep out pattern or, or or on a dig route. Okay, that's just not Teddy's game. It's not how he's built. Good thing is the Saints you have Sean Payton, and a lot of his scheme is about getting the ball out quickly. But I do question if he can really lead this team and step in like uh, nothing happened. Okay, I mean after all it is Drew Brees, but Bridgewater doesn't you know he doesn't sit at the top of the cup and deliver the ball. Okay, you got to move him off platform a little bit. You got to get the throw in front of him, whoever he's intending as a target. You got to move him off platform a little bit. I think they can go three and three if Brees misses this minimum six games. I think they can go three and three. That's why I think it's probably the least effective to their team. The next one, uh, New York Jets, Sam Darnold. They have obviously, you know, a, a I'm not going to say a star in the making, but he has all the, he's got all the fixings to do it, if you will. I'm just, I'm not ready to call him a star just yet, but he obviously is a high level guy. He's all about ball. You got Adam Gase there who knows how to scheme up plays this is tough, okay? This sinks him even more down probably to the top of the draft if he's going to miss seven weeks because he's going to lose weight. Again, he has mono. I've had mono myself. Uh, that was back when I was 21. I think a lot of people have had it. And, yeah, you do lose weight, and it really does affect you even back to when you're clear to resume physical activity. This stuff can linger close to a year sometimes. We may not see fully health, full health out of Sam Darnold, until this year, or this time next year. He'll be able to work out and stuff. He'll be able to play. He won't be at risk of hurting his spleen, but it can actually fester for a long time now. So I think this does hurt the New York Jets quite a bit. However, not as much as the next two, because as I will say here in a minute, I think the New York Jets have a quarterback that can help him out. But before I get to that, I will get to Cam Newton. He is now out uh, with the Carolina Panthers with an injury, probably going to miss a few weeks here. This is tough. This is tough because their whole game is centered around how his, uh, you know, his style. And Cam's style is a power thrower, play action, uh, 
for some reason, they don't really design runs uh, all that much for him anymore, even though that when they went to the Super Bowl, that's what they did was design runs for him to, you know, rip off 30 or 40 yard run once or twice a game. They've gotten away with that because they realize you're putting him at harm's risk. Well, that's the style of play you've committed to. And now you're taking that away. You're either in or you're out. And right now it looks like you're out because the thing about Cam Newton for as mobile as he is within the pocket, he doesn't really maneuver all that much. Cam's a rather, rather a statue in the pocket trying to deliver the football. And we all know he has horrible mechanics. He drops it down, sometimes throws it three quarters. Looks like he's pushing the ball. Um, you know, limited route trees, not doesn't have a whole lot of touch on the ball. Uh, this hurts the Panthers big time. Uh, mainly because Will Greer is not ready to play yet. So I think, if I recall, I, who were they playing this week? It was a guy that I remembered his name, but I forgot he was even out there. And yeah, he's on the team now. Oh, it's uh, it's Kyle Murray, I believe. Not Kyler Murray, but uh, the guy from Arkansas. He's playing for the Panthers this week, uh, and this is bad news for them because their defense is solid. I don't think it's great like it used to be. Uh, their pass catchers are porous, and when you don't have Cam Newton and you don't have your uh, tandem in uh, Christian McCaffrey as far as the different runs that you can generate that way, this is bad news for the Panthers. They are probably the team uh, second on this list that will miss their quarterback the most. Number one. Ben Roethlisberger, Hall of Famer, 37 years old. Uh, it was on a non-contact play, and that is, that's a worrisome, okay? That's worrisome. That his elbow gave out, and that now we're hearing reports that in practice, apparently it was hurting him, and then he comes out of a game, and he's out for the year. He needs surgery, and you have Mason Rudolph as your QB. I've always said about Mason Rudolph, he's got all the physical gifts in the world, but he's coming from Oklahoma State. And one thing I learned about Oklahoma State long ago from, uh, you know, I'm a man, I'm 40, Van Gundy, his offense is just, it's basically, I'm not going to call it high school because, you know, he's, he's won a lot of games over there, but it's so simplistic, okay? They don't run routes. Look at their offense, sprint right, left, spr or, uh, sprint option left, sprint option uh, right. That's all it is. Mason Rudolph threw off his front foot the entire time at Oklahoma State. Look at their receivers. None of them have really turned out to be all that good. Des Bryant, I mean, yeah, he was productive, but what what killed him in the end? He couldn't run routes. He never even learned him in the NFL. I like James Washington a lot, but even he was really raw coming in last year. And now he'll be on the same team as Rudolph, so maybe they'll have a little connection there. But you can look at uh you can look at Justin Blackman. He was an alcoholic, but even he his route running wasn't that refined, okay? I don't know about the offensive players coming out of Oklahoma State. I certainly don't know about the quarterback position. I think he hasn't demonstrated that he can make enough throws to win games for this Steelers team. They're really going to miss him. And this defense, it's been overshadowed. They have not been that great. I, I thought they would be a lot better. But this defense so far from the Steelers, yeah, it's, it's been pretty bad through two weeks. Now, defense takes some time. I always say that. I think their unit will improve. They just traded for Mika Fitzpatrick. I'll get to that in a minute. But overall, I think the Steelers will miss Roethlisberger the most. I think then Cam is the most second important to uh, to the Panthers. You got Sam Darnold, uh, who's going to be absent for the Jets. Breeze with the Saints. And, of course, Nick Foles with the Jaguars. That's the least because they've been terrible. Those quarterbacks, that's how I rank them, importance to their team and their absence here early in the 2019 season.
Last thing I'll say on the quarterback play thus far that we've seen and how it relates to the injuries. Sam Darnold, I said, okay, again, I put him third as far as the importance to his team with the Jets. Partially is because who is now playing? Trevor Simeon obviously hurt in Monday Night Football just yesterday. I'm recording this on Tuesday, September 17th. Luke Falk is a player that got to go in the game yesterday after Simeon, uh, which you know, feel sorry for him. Okay, that injury, that's tough. That looked nasty. He's out for the year. Luke Falk is starting for the foreseeable future, and I myself am very happy to see it. I have been a Luke Falk advocate really since the, I would say about mid-2016. 2016 is when I saw him at Washington State. The one thing that I was always very impressed with him was the command of the offense. Now, he comes from Mike Leach. Okay, very simplistic again. Not difficult, but he was always managing the line of scrimmage. I thought, wow, this guy's a junior doing this, and then he stayed for one more year after that. He's a junior doing this, and Mike Leach is entrusting him with this. Not, you know, again, not the most difficult offense to grasp, but the fact that you're at the line of scrimmage doing that in-game, I think, says something, okay? I like seeing that. You don't, really, it's a rarity. In college football nowadays, you look to the sidelines or the play call is in quickly and you're pretty much in two-minute drill most of the game. Uh, You have the benefit of space on a college football field. It just works better that way, but not Luke Falk. That's when he got my attention. I watched him pretty much through, uh, you know, the end of that year uh, into his final season in 2017 and how he stacked up against the 2018 class. Look, I didn't think he was the best quarterback in the draft. I actually thought Josh Rosen was the best one in 2018. We're going to see if that rings true or not. He really have, hasn't gotten his shot just yet. He went into the Miami game against the Patriots. It was 43-0. That was a disaster. He had, he had no, no shot of surviving. But Luke Falk, one guy that I thought never really got his due as a prospect in that uh, in that class. Baker Mayfield, he's been good. Okay, Sam Darnold, he's been good. Josh Allen, yeah, yeah, up and down a little bit. I kept seeing, or I kept thinking to myself, you know, this Luke Falk guy, he, he seems pretty solid to me. I mean, I understand he doesn't have the strongest arm. I see that. But arm strength's pretty overrated to me in the NFL, especially nowadays with the way how passing is set up and how you can attack holes uh, in a defense and really just attack every blade of grass out there and really chew up yards. I don't need a can of an arm. Cannon of an arm, excuse me. Is it nice? Yeah, but you don't need it. What I love about Luke Falk, anticipatory thrower. Pocket presence, tough. He played through injury. He played his senior year through uh, through an injury. Could have hung it up. Could have said, hey, I'm going to uh, wait this out. I'm an NFL prospect. No, he played for his team. I like that. Leadership. His throwing over the middle, okay? Middle of the field is wide open. He's thrown it with velocity. He had a couple missiles last night, okay? His best throws of the night were when Gaze schemed up plays over the middle. Some shallow crossers. Uh, it was in the intermediate game. It was when he wasn't playing his best when he pretty much had a one-shot look. Usually it was like a deep post, and then he had a check down to Bell. That's all Gaze was getting him. That's all he was scheming up for him. I, I was kind of disappointed in that regard. But his best throws over the middle, uh, tough. Again, throws with some anticip- anticipation and accuracy. That's what I love, anticipation and accuracy. Those two traits, you got my attention. You're controlling the line of scrimmage. He got my attention. I'm not saying he's the next, you know, Tom Brady. He was pick sixth round, 199, same as Tom Brady, just so you know. But 
I like him as a prospect. I'm looking forward to seeing him play. Now, I know they said uh, during the broadcast, I think it was Mike Tannenbaum, who I had no idea was doing stuff for ESPN anymore. They've just, ESPN has become unbearable for me. It's hard for me to watch. They still got some folks that I like to hear, Lewis Riddick. Uh, but now that Tannenbaum's on there, uh, I'm going to be interested about that because they relayed the info that he had about Falk. And, you know, overall, I'm happy he's gotten an opportunity. Obviously, it's come at others' expense, but that's the National Football League. That's sports. Someone goes down, your time to shine. Let's see Luke Falk. I'm excited to watch him. I think he's got a bright future. If he's molded the correct way, we'll see how he does under Adam Gaze here with the New York Jets. Keeping things on the field, we're going to go to the Dallas Cowboys. 2-0, they beat the Washington Redskins, they beat the New York Giants. 2-0 in the division, 2-0 overall, and now uh, their offense is a humming, man. Kellen Moore, he really has revamped it. You were so unsure of it because he was still being coached by Jason Garrett, or working under Jason Garrett, I should say. And when the head coach doesn't change, typically the offensive identity won't change that much. But Garrett has really delegated down. He's let Kellen Moore revamp this. And it's, I thought there would be a few wrinkles in here, but it's pretty much different. They are actually tailoring towards Dak Prescott a lot better. Now, there's a couple things I'd like to see a little bit more of. Again, my whole thing is move him in the pocket, get him off platform. That's when his deep ball prowess really becomes alive. But they're still scheming up deep balls for him. They are using play action, and they're using it wisely, not only for uh, to combat the defense who th- who are selling out on Ezekiel Elliott in the run game, but they're also using it to uh, move defenders for Dak Prescott to create some easier throws. It's the shifts, it's the motions, it's the uh, it's the protection calls that are you know being uh, assigned at the line of scrimmage that are different than in years past. It used to be very stale: line up at the line of scrimmage, diagnose it, go. Nobody moves. That's not the case anymore. You're seeing the tight alignments from the wide receivers. Um, again, moving the defenders. It's it's just better. It's better for number four because you're making life easier on them. Right now, or excuse me, in the past, you had to, they were forcing Dak Prescott to play in a very traditional offense and to make all the calls himself at the line of scrimmage, diagnose the defense and go. It's very Peyton Manning-like. As far as stylistically, that's how Peyton Manning liked to play. Because obviously, you know, he was just, you know, a surgeon back there. Diagnosing and slicing up the defense. Okay, well, Dak Prescott, okay, one, he doesn't have the IQ. He doesn't have, uh, you know, the mental bank up there as far as Peyton Manning had when he was in year 12. And also, he's just not as physically gifted, okay, from an arm standpoint. Um, he's not as tall as Peyton Manning was. Dak Prescott has different capabilities, both physically and mentally. And now you're seeing it with the Dallas Cowboys. They look great. Michael Gallup, he's going to be out for a couple weeks now, but he's a legit deep threat. You have Devin Smith coming back, who I forgot about. I, I mean, he was the guy uh, a few years ago out of Ohio State. He's in the mix now. You got Amari Cooper, um, Ezekiel Elliott flashes in, in the passing game a little bit. You know, they probably should use him a tick more. Uh, and the defense, while it hasn't played quite yet, when you combine it, when this defense starts humming again, because Rodden Marinelli will have his boys playing fast, this Cowboys team looks scary. The Philadelphia Eagles, now they just had a lot of injuries. That could cost them here. This few weeks where uh, you just got word that Deshaun Jackson's going to be out. Uh, What's-his-face is out, Timmy, uh, not Timmy Jernigan, uh, Malik Jackson. 
or maybe it was Timmy Jernigan, the defensive tackle, he's going to be out. Uh, they got some injuries. Basically, that's going to cost them some time here early in the season. And, you know, it could be the time for Dallas to steal a couple games in the standings and never relinquish it. So, um, Dallas Cowboys look good. I'm buying Kellen Moore. This isn't fluff. This isn't playing bad teams. This is an offensive identity that has shifted towards tailoring towards your quarterback and the strengths of really just the, the league as a whole. I'm all in on the Cowboys. I think they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. This was a playoff team that I had. I'm sticking with it. They might even take the division now with Philadelphia having some injuries here early on. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but, you know, it's a part of this league. It's a part of the uh, the news cycle people are interested in about, uh, excuse me, interested about it. And really it's, you know, affecting the on-field play potentially and, you know, the viability uh, of a team in this league. And that's the New England Patriots and their new receiver, Antonio Brown. I have not recorded a podcast since he became a member of that team. And, you know, I'm almost happy I haven't because it's exhausting keeping up with this because it's just something new every day. The latest of which is the most awful, and that's the accusation of rape against Antonio Brown from one of his former trainers. It's not a difficult one to grasp. It's not really anything you have to think too hard about it's black and white if the allegations are true he should go to jail if they are false and the woman is making it up she should go to jail because that's a very very serious thing the issue is nobody knows what happened now there's been a second allegation that came out i don't necessarily think that a second one gives credence to the first one and therefore you know, they're both more likely to happen. Not necessarily. I also think what's been demonstrated by Antonio Brown, his erratic behavior, his outbursts, his tirades, that doesn't mean that someone would commit a heinous crime like sexual assault, forcible rape as well. When I, I mean, when I say as well, I just mean to clarify exactly what we read in that report uh, last week. Because while there's sexual assault um, overall and, you know, that that criminal accusation, not all are the same as we all know. There's forcible rape, and that is what we're hearing about Antonio Brown, and that's about as bad as it gets. In fact, I think that's probably the worst. And if that's the case, again, he should go to jail. But right now, we're still waiting for everything to come out as far as evidence and how this is going to be uh, adjudicated, both by the NFL uh, whether he'll go on the commissioner's exemplus and whether he'll go to jail, whether there will be a, you know, a criminal case. Cause right now it's a civil case. Um, from my understanding, again, I'm not a lawyer, but you know, just trying to keep up with this and understand everything. That's what's going on. Um, the one thing as it relates to the NFL and the new England Patriots is that the Patriots said they had no idea. And there are a lot of people calling BS on that. And I find that to be very, very bold. As I have tweeted out before about the New England Patriots, for all the, I'm not going to say flack, but for the reputation that they receive for uh, basically taking on character flaws of past people, whether you're talking about Randy Moss, whether you're talking about LeGarrette Blunt, whether you're talking about Albert Hainsworth, they always seem to have this reputation as they'll take on anything. And that's not the case when it comes to domestic violence and sexual assault. Never in the Bill Belichick era 
have they signed someone with that case against them? Domestic abuse or sexual assault? That is the one thing Robert Kraft does not allow. The one exception has been Terry Glenn, 1996, first round pick, Bill Belichick inherited him. This is a situation, too, in which they inherited the problem, the issue at hand, Antonio Brown. They did not know prior to this. Robert Kraft, under no circumstance, it was important to his then-wife, Myra Kraft, that every New England Patriot be a good citizen, and that was one of their no-nos. That was their deal-breakers. You don't cross that line. You smoke a little pot, okay. You have a little alcohol issue, okay. You do this, you you outburst, okay. Domestic violence, sexual assault, no. So I do not for one second believe that the Patriots knew about this. I just don't. From what I've known about Robert Kraft, looking at their player acquisition and the history of all of them, you won't find it. Terry Glenn is the only one, and he was inherited. And that's the situation you now have with Antonio Brown. They're letting the legal process play out. They're letting the NFL investigation play out. And really, that's all there is to it. I don't have much of an opinion on it. Obviously, if it's true, that's horrible. I hope he goes to jail. Uh, if not, I hope the girl goes to jail because that's an awful thing to bring against someone. Uh, we'll see what happens. It's heading into week three now. It is Tuesday. Antonio Brown is still with the New England Patriots and is planning to play on this Sunday against Miami. Okay, let's talk trades. Trades are happening a little bit more now in the NFL. It's kind of good to see because usually it's been that the NFL is always reluctant to give up on good players. Now they're realizing that, you know, you can get some pretty good uh, capital as far as resources are concerned, typically through the draft, as far as building your team. So they're not afraid to trade good players because they feel draft and development is a, uh, a lot stronger and they can replenish good players to their future teams. Now we're talking about Minka Fitzpatrick, okay? He was traded from the Miami Dolphins just here uh, yesterday evening, Monday night, during the Monday night football game. He's headed to the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Steelers give up a 2020 first-round pick. The Steelers also received Miami's fourth-round pick in 2020, and they're going to get a seventh-rounder in 2021. Now, a lot of people may scoff at a 2021 seventh-rounder, but the thing about it is is that it gives you an extra year of cost control as opposed to an undrafted free agent that may also be worthy of that pick. Okay, It's an extra pick really to guarantee cost control. Seventh-rounders are important. Uh, but nobody cares about that. We will talk about really just how this trade adds up altogether. I don't like it for Pittsburgh. If I'm Miami, you know, Minka is a solid player so far in you know his one-plus year in the NFL. I think he could have improved. But the fact that they're going to basically say, we'll just take the pick back, uh, I think speaks volumes to really what they think of him as a player. And, you know, Pro Football Focus has graded him out pretty well, okay? I'm looking at some of the stuff now, and I pour over PFF just as much as the next guy. But I don't really tend to agree with it. Because every time I've watched Mika Fitzpatrick, he's gotten beat. Now, I know he's pretty good in the slot, and that's where Pittsburgh wants to use him. But the thing is, is every time I look at him, it seems like he's freelancing out there. And that was always his thing at Alabama. Nick Saban, uh, I'm pretty sure... You know, he's famously said he's given Mika more leeway than any other defensive back he's ever coached. Well, it's kind of showing up in the NFL. And whether that's Mika Fitzpatrick 
trying to compensate for his poor Miami teammates? Maybe it is. I don't think so. I was texting with a buddy yesterday who's a, who's a Steelers fan, and he proposed to me. He goes, well, don't you think, you know, Mika was just playing bad in Miami because, uh, you know, Miami's so bad and, you know, they're, they're losing games. And I said, not necessarily because the one area of, you know, competence with the Dolphins is their secondary. They got Xavier Howard. Uh, they had, uh, what's his face? The other safety that they paid too much money, but now he's a, he's a part-time player, basically. Uh, Richard something. Gosh, he plays part-time now, but they paid him a whole bunch of money and it never made any sense. It was back when you were paying safeties just uh, way too much after the Earl Thomas effect and Cam Chancellor effect. But anyway, they I mean, they're, they're pretty much, you know, they're adequate back there. So when Mika is freelancing and, you know, kind of cheating this way or cheating that way because with the secondary, you're the last line of defense. It's the one area where, you know, you'll find teammates basically try and cover for, you know, the, the ineptitude that their other teammates bring. You'll see a safety maybe, you know, move a little closer this way. You know, if they have, uh, we'll take the Steelers, if you have Stevie Nelson and he's lining up against uh, uh, DeAndre Hopkins or something, maybe they'll they'll nudge a little that way just because they know, hey, this guy's probably going to beat my teammate and I have to be there to save the play. You find that stuff in the secondary a little bit more. So, we'll find out. We'll find out if Mika Fitzpatrick actually is as talented as one I thought he was coming out uh, of the uh, you know the 2018 draft. But really, I've, I've been I was unimpressed his first year. I really was. Um, not that he was a total disaster, but he just wasn't as good as what he was chalked up to be. And now the Steelers give up what is likely, in my opinion, going to be a top 10 pick. I think Mason Rudolph, if they're committed to him which this move also kind of demonstrates that. I know they signed Paxton Lynch, but Paxton Lynch is not going, I don't know if he's going to play much football for the Steelers. Um, not be, it's not, he's not going to force his way onto the team, that's for sure. If they're committed to Mason Rudolph, I've already mentioned again, I'm not big on him. I don't think he really has demonstrated a lot as far as being able to make enough of the throws in the NFL. I don't think Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's going to end up in a good spot here. They're 0-2 already. It's going to be tough to make the playoffs for one. And they also have to navigate a schedule that's not the easiest going forward. I think they just gave up a a high pick that could be very valuable. Um, You know, I like teams that don't hoarder draft picks because they're not everything. I'm not saying this pick is going to turn out to be an absolute bust. But on the surface here, I think they're putting a lot of stock into Minka Fitzpatrick and him being a dynamic secondary player, a defensive back for them uh, and, and their defense. Now, they need pieces to help get them going. I still think they're talented. This will add to it. Uh, but it was a high p- price to pay. They basically bought salary cap, cap relief, and I don't agree with it. But the next trade, we'll move on to that one. And that's the one that hasn't happened yet, but it appears imminent. And it is Jalen Ramsey. Jalen Ramsey, of course, got into a spat with uh, Doug Marone on Sunday uh, down in Houston when they were playing the Texans. Now, usually I have opinions on this stuff. Uh, anytime, you know, a player's going back and forth with his coach or I think, you know, he's has conduct detrimental to the team. To the team. But in this situation, I, I refrained because I don't know what's going on, on the sideline. I don't know what was said necessarily. Um, but in all likelihood, I knew it was probably Jalen uh, really hurting his team in that situation. And, you know, we still don't know because nothing's been brought to light. But what we do know is that his days are numbered in Jacksonville. 
And if I'm Jacksonville, I'm not so sure if I'm going to be eager to trade him away. Because unless a first-round pick plus is sent our way, I don't see why I would. I would just make him play. Because it's not like he's not going to suit up. He has to play and he needs to perform to stay valuable as a player. And if I'm Shad Khan, the owner, I'm cleaning house at the end of the year anyway. Doug Marone is not a good NFL coach. Tom Coughlin, I don't know if I want him running this team. Like I mentioned earlier, this guy's a disciplinarian. This is the most undisciplined team in the NFL. Do I want Tom Coughlin running this deal? And then David Caldwell is just a joke. He's the guy that kept Blake Bortles around forever. If I'm the owner, I'm not signing off on you know a trade of arguably your best player because I'm cleaning house anyway, and I'm going to let that guy make the decision if we want to extend him or not. Because Shad Khan, for all that he said, he goes, he knows I'm not a football guy. I hire guys to take care of that for me. My job's to grow it in Jacksonville and be committed to the community, which he has ever since he moved uh, or bought the team down there, and then committed dollars to the stadium. He's been a pretty good owner for uh, for a very small market, a very uh, uh, transient market in Jacksonville, Florida. So. Um, that's a little, not, that's not here nor there. But what I'm saying is as it relates to Jalen Ramsey, I might hold on to him because you got the fifth year option anyway, and it's cheap and where the Jacksonville Jaguars are headed. It's not a good place. I'm not so sure I'm flipping him just for anything. If the first round pick is not met, I'm sure as hell not trading them. And if it's not a first round pick plus a, maybe plus a player, like a reclamation project, I'm not trading them this year. I would play hardball if I'm the Jacksonville Jaguars. Kansas City Chiefs might be one to to buck up and pay it, considering where they are. They might just trade a first-round pick, and, man, I don't know who else they would trade. It would have to probably be a lineman, but are you really going to do that if you're KC? You're not going to trade, like, a you know, a starting-caliber lineman. Where, where is an area of depth on the Kansas City Chiefs? You know, it's a little bit better than last year, but I don't know if they're going to be so uh, – uh, eager to trade a player off their roster for this year, so it would have to be another. It would have to be another draft pick, and you where where's that going to land? A first plus a plus a third, maybe. That's a lot of capital to to give up. But if you're the Kansas City Chiefs, you might just go for broke on this one. Uh, another team that's a possibility needs cornerback help. Hmm. Eagles potentially. I mean, the Eagles are always wheeling and dealing. You could see the. I mean, everybody needs corner help, and it really just comes down to you know who who wants to take that on. I see the, the Raiders. I could see them doing it. I could see the Raiders trading for Jalen Ramsey. But all I know is I'm holding on to him unless I get that first plus pick. Okay, that first rounder plus more because right now. While he does have some baggage, while he does have some off-the-field things that he brings, he is one nasty do-it-all shutdown corner. I am not going to be eager to trade Jalen Ramsey if I'm the Jacksonville Jaguars. Okay, everyone, that's going to do it. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. That is episode 29. I need your questions, anything and everything. Pete's picks, we are now, we went 23-9 and through the first two weeks, 10-6 and in week one. 13 and 3 in week 2. We are off to a hot start, a 700 winning percentage, nearly 800. If you want to know who's going to win the game, check out my picks. I release them every Sunday right before the noon kickoff or 1 p.m. Eastern if you're on uh if you're on that time zone. 
Look out for my picks, all right? If you want to earn some money, I'm going to let you know who's going to win the game. I also picked the scores, and I've been close on a couple. I've gotten uh, four scores, uh, correct total, not the score of each game, but uh, uh, for one of the teams in each game so far, four separate times. I've gotten that correct. I'm going to continue to do that every single game. Look out for it this Thursday when you got Titans-Jaguars, you know, the, the matchup of all matchups on Thursday Night Football. Tweet at me your questions. That's at Pete4C. Instagram, Snap, Twitter, what have you. I want your questions on anything and everything. I'll read them right here on the show, and you can engage with me that way. We also might have some more engagement. We might have some call-ins for you and the fans uh, of the podcast to go head-to-head with me right here now. I heard some people here recently say that they want to be able to fire back at me, clap back at, at me and all of the takes that I have on anything NFL. We will, uh, we will explore that idea, but for now, go ahead, hit that text line, hit that uh, phone line, and as always, hit me up on social media. Thanks again for tuning in. We will see you next week.